Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Well, we made it. Yeah, it was a long night for some of these races. Not so long for others, but either way, another midterm election in New Mexico is now behind us. So a quick run through of some of the key races in New Mexico. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, she won re-election against her Republican challenger, Mark Ronchetti, by six points. The weather forecast for New Mexico is four more years. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham with 52% of the total votes in that race. And I certainly hope the governor in her second four years will tune an ear to your voice again and make sure that she listens to you and make sure she governs with humility. Mark Ronchetti with 46%, and that's a difference of about 44,000 votes. This is a consequential election, and this is a serious time in the life of this country. Bernalillo County uh, District Attorney Raul Torres won his race for the Attorney General's office against Republican challenger Jeremy Gay. There's a few other statewide races that we can talk about, including as well some congressional district races. We'll get to those at a little bit at the end of the episode, but just to note one of the other very close races down south, but also stretching into Albuquerque now, A very tight race for New Mexico's Congressional District 2 between Gabe Vasquez, the Democratic challenger, and incumbent Republican Yvette Harrell, the Secretary of State's office website, had it at 50-50, basically Tuesday night throughout Wednesday, and really it is still 50-50 percentage-wise at this point. But as of Wednesday night, Democrat Gabe Vasquez declared victory over Yvette Harrell. He won by just over 1,200 votes. Uh, We spent so much time on the road building relationships with Uh, communities all across this huge district. And so, you know, clearly it paid off. With talk of some potential recounts and really close races this election day, we wanted to talk a little bit about how it all works and what the state does to keep elections safe and secure during these runs for public office. On the line with us today is the Secretary of State herself, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. Maggie, thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. First, I wanted to ask, how many elections have you overseen? (laughs) Well, uh, let's see, many since uh, 2007, but this was my eighth general election um, over the years. So quite a few at this point. (laughs) Okay. And since 2007, right, that's counting and looking at your time as the Bernalillo County clerk, right? That's right. I spent 10 years in that office, of course, running elections at the local level in our in our state's largest jurisdiction. Yes. So that happened, obviously, yeah, before you became the secretary of state, um, a job you've held for several years now. And in this latest election, voters gave you a third term, as I understand it. Correct. Uh, Second full term. But yes. Yeah. (laughs) However you want to call it. Yes. Okay. So there are 33 (laughs) counties in New Mexico all of which at this point now, here we are uh, recording this episode on the Thursday, so two days after election day, uh, Mm -hmm. 33 counties that all still need to, air quotes, certify 
their county right. results. So that's I use the quotes because that is the the term, right? Certify their county election results. Correct. What does that job entail when it comes to elections? Sure. Well, I think, you know, as most people know by now, um, while the vast majority of the votes are, are counted and accounted for on election night, there are always um, first and foremost, still some outstanding ballots that have to be uh, accounted. Um, and so in most cases, that includes ballots that have to be hand tallied for some reason, either a machine couldn't read them or, uh, you know, there was some issue with the ballot. Maybe the voter made a mistake on it, but didn't want to get a new ballot, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We also have provisional ballots that have to be qualified and then uh, either rejected or potentially counted. And then once all of the the ballots have been sort of initially counted, uh, the counties go through and conduct a canvas, which is essentially an audit. Um, they will go back through every single polling location or the absentee board, double check that every ballot that has been issued uh, is accounted for. If a ballot was spoiled uh, and basically tossed out, that's accounted for. If it's rejected, just making sure all the numbers add up. And if there are any discrepancies or errors, which, you know, it is a human process and that can happen even though it's rare, but that those are accounted for just like any other audit, right? If, if you see a discrepancy, there has to be an explanation for why. Um, and all of that comes together uh, to be then presented to the county canvassing board, which is also the county commission to be certified and signed off on. So for those that maybe aren't familiar with how this works behind the scenes, when you go in to vote at a polling location in New Mexico, you usually check in with somebody at that long desk, you provide your name and your address. The person checking you in has you usually sign your name electronically. They print out a ballot for you. You go and you fill it in with, um, this time I used a black marker that they handed to me and, and you hand it over at the end to be counted. Mm -hmm. They slide the ballot then into this like electronic reader. And then you hear a ding, right? What does that machine do and how does it work exactly? Well, it's it's like a basic scanner. Um, and so when you put your ballot in the tabulator, what it's doing is it's reading that ballot. And as it's being scanned, it's recording the votes on that ballot onto a memory card. We actually have two memory cards, so a primary and a backup. Um, and then when it's done scanning and reading, when you're hearing that ding, that's when your ballot is then sort of going down into the bin where it's going to be collected with all of the other ballots and anonymized. Um, so basically, you know, at the end of the night, when the poll officials close down that machine, not only are they going to have the paper record that's going to be locked and, and sealed in a box and, and ready in case it's ever needed to be consulted again, um, but then we also have those uh, digital memory cards that are then brought to the county clerk's office and those results from those memory cards are uploaded into our election results site. Obviously, over the last few election cycles, there's been a lot of uh, talk about machines just broadly. I know, obviously, you do machine testing, and I'm talking about the machines. I mean, the tabulators, I, I believe I'm right. talking about the role of security in those tabulating machines. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? 
It's extensive. Um, so first of all, we have statutory requirements for even just keeping those machines stored when they're not in use um, in, in monitored, secured facilities. Um, when they're not in use in between elections, we conduct what's called preventative maintenance. So just like you take your car in for an oil change or a tune-up, you know, we will fire them up in between elections, make sure they're still turning on, working, they're cleaned, um, you know, there's no issues with them. And then before an election, uh, before we put them into use in any polling location, they are pre-tested, like you said, Chris. And so what we will do is um, take a, a stack of test ballots with a, we, a predetermined outcome. We already know what we're looking for. We'll feed those through the machine, make sure that everything's adding up the way it's supposed to. Uh, and then once that's verified, and by the way, that's done in a public process. We can have people from both political parties, all political parties, just curious, interested citizens um, watching that process. And then the clerks and their staff and any observers will make sure that everything is adding up right. And then it's zeroed out. Right. So we make then we print a tape, making sure it's showing all zeros. So there's no results left on the machine. And then um, the the card slot. So, again, we talked about the memory cards that record the votes that are going to be uploaded. There is a there is actually a seal that goes over that card slot that's numbered and you know again in front of everybody you know that numbered seal is recorded and and so <clears throat> If it's ever tampered with, we will know because the seal will be broken. There will be a different number seal on there, something like that. And then when the machines are moved to polling locations and moved back out, um, we we follow what's called the chain of custody procedure. So every time that machine goes somewhere or changes hands, there is a sign off of a time and a place and a person or set of people. Um, so we can know at any point, OK, well, at this point, everything was fine, but then after after this point, there was an issue. We know when and and with whom that occurred. So that's just a, a you know a, a bit of what we do to keep them safe. But there's just so many more steps in the process. We could talk about it all podcast, and I know yeah. we don't want to do that. <laughs> right on. Well, and I appreciate the background. It, it is really helpful to get a better process about that, and it, it reminds me very much of what the police do when they have evidence in criminal cases. Exactly. Right, the chain of custody thing. Um, exactly. Moving on to the idea of the election results that come out of those tabulators, um, the results from election night and even days after those numbers really start to add up, they're still considered unofficial. Right. So what does that mean? What happens to make them official? I imagine it has something to do with kind of the audit process. Maybe you talked about Right, exactly. So the canvas will be conducted, the audit, making sure for every ballot issued, spoiled, et cetera, it's accounted for in some way. Um, and that, again, any discrepancy that may exist can be explained. That'll go before the, each county's board of canvas. The county board of canvas is really responsible. And I know we had a lot of, you know, some questions about this during the primary election. All opposed say nay. 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 The Otero County Commissioners voted to not certify the primary results earlier this week. And because of that vote and other election-related votes taken by the commission, the Secretary of State is calling for a criminal and civil investigation. They are 
essentially responsible for just making sure that that canvas process actually happened, that it was followed and that there's a report. And if there are any discrepancies or any issues, anything missing in that report, they have the power to compel um, a precinct board or the county clerk to get that information to make sure it's complete. That's that's it. And so basically their job is sort of this independent third party to say, yes, this process was followed. Once they've signed off at the county level, if there's any races that were entirely contained within that county, at that point, the results are official. Um, if there are races that are multi-county, so a lot of our state representative races are multi-county or statewide, any other districted races, we then do another layer of canvas at the Secretary of State's office to make sure that everything adds up for all 33 counties. Uh, and then before we certify our results at the state level, we also have an independent auditor, a CPA firm that comes in and triple checks the county numbers, our numbers. Uh, to make sure everything's accurate. At that point, it goes before the State Board of Canvas. At the, uh, this year, that's going to be on November 29th. And then we will, the State Board of Canvas, certify. Uh, and at that point, everything is official. Um, and that's when, if there's going to be a recount that needs to be ordered, then another audit, a post-election audit, uh, and we can talk about that if you like, that's when those processes can occur. So I know this was somewhat in the headlines this year, um, in particular, one county in New Mexico in this most recent election cycle. What happens if a county refuses to certify election results? I, I think you saw what happens, and that is, uh, you know, we will file a petition with the state Supreme Court and, and have the court tell them to do their job. The state Supreme Court is ordering the Otero County Commission to move forward with certifying the primary election results. Otero County Commissioners have certified their primary election results after the courts ordered them to do so. The commission held an emergency vote this afternoon to meet today's certification deadline. They originally voted not to certify, citing concerns about the accuracy of vote tabulation machines. The Secretary of State's office said there was no evidence of election irregularities and that the commission had no authority to change election protocols. It's not a, a choice. It's a requirement under state law. And so if these officials are are uh, following their oaths of office and uh, undertaking the duties that they are required to by law, they will sign off. Hopefully we don't have to go through that really confusing, you know, process that we had to deal with in the primary, because, you know, here's the important thing to note, uh, you know, if there are questions about the outcome of a race. If we do need to do an automatic recount, or even if there is, you know, something so egregious that folks think have happened that they want to challenge that in court, they can't do that until we have done that certification process. So it's almost like, um, you know, you, you have to get over that initial hurdle of certification before any of the other legal due process or any of the other administrative due process like recount can take place. And we've seen, you know, some trust in our institutions wane lately and heard people questioning the validity of election results in recent years. This isn't necessarily something new in U.S. politics, but certainly maybe made more prevalent under Donald Trump. I know you've gone over a lot of this now, but what do you tell to folks who maybe 
do have a little less trust in our institution these days? What kind of safeguards are put in place to make sure that New Mexico elections are are really secure? Sure. Well, a, a couple of things, you know, first of all, I think it's important for folks to know that there is a lot of mis and disinformation about, out there about our election process, and it's being perpetuated by folks who do want to undermine that confidence in our election process. Um, so obviously, you know, if you hear, oh, you know, these machines are, you know, hooked up to the internet or something like that, I would first encourage folks to do some due diligence. Do not take a rumor as reality. Uh, uh, again, we, you know, we have a rumor versus reality page on our website where we take these kind of common myths and look at how, you know, the, the veracity of them and, and what actually happens. Um, so getting your own information independent of whoever is is trying to convince you that there is a problem. But we know, you know, folks may not necessarily want to take that at face value either. So I also just want to encourage folks to be part of the process. You know, every step of the election process between when we start pre-certifying those machines to the election process itself, to the post-election, the canvas, and then the post-election audit, these are public processes. And you can go to your county party chairperson and say, look, I want to be part of the process. I want to be a challenger at a polling place or an observer of the process. Ask to be part of that, to put eyes on it yourself so you can see for yourself all of the different steps that go into ensuring an accurate count. And then finally, you know, I would even encourage folks to volunteer to work as a poll official, because if the integrity of the election is a concern of yours, it should be a concern of all of ours. Um, then put your money where your mouth is, go work the polls and be part of the process that ensures that accuracy and integrity. Yeah. You mentioned poll watchers and I, I you know, they are big part of keeping elections sites in check. These could be people from either party, right? I, I know that when I vote in Bernalillo County, I usually see like older folks volunteering. Do you get a range of demographics? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's been a challenge in election administration for a really long time, right? You know, older folks tend to, um, you know, be retired, have more time on their hands to volunteer. You know, it is a commitment and a very long day uh, working at a polling location. Um, you know, we also older folks are, are, you know, tend to be more civically engaged. Um, that just seems to be, a, you know, a product of, of getting older. But we have and we've been making concerted efforts to bring more younger people into the process because, you know, if you think about it, uh, you know, we always have to have individuals in our communities who are willing to work the polls and uh, we cherish our elderly folks and the folks that have a lot of experience, but they're not going to be around forever. So one of the things we did in New Mexico a few years ago is we made it so that we could even um, bring 16 and 17 year olds into the polling place to serve as poll officials. When I was Bernalillo County clerk. And I know since then, the current clerk has made a huge effort to have a lot of younger people be part of the process. So they're learning uh, and gaining that experience and, and gaining the benefit of the wisdom and the experience of the older poll workers. And they're also able to, I think, effectively navigate some of the new technological processes that are part of voting. Um, so it ends up being a really good combination, but we always need more younger folks involved. So I want to delve a little bit more into the recount territory, an example of a very close race this election being Congressional District 2, 
which right. as I understand is not under kind of the mandatory recount rules. And we can get a little bit to those, but right. votes in Doniana County, as I understand, were still being counted into Wednesday after Tuesday's election. Gabe Vasquez added votes. Um, he ultimately claimed victory last night. Yvette Harrell conceded in the race. Uh, this is a race that according to the data that I'm seeing online from the SOS's webpage this morning, just 1,277 votes separated the two candidates with the Democrat, Gabe Vasquez, taking the lead there. So redistricting obviously happened in this race. Uh, Republicans are challenging redistricting now in the courts and the state Supreme Court will hear that argument. But still, at least from what we can see, these results don't qualify for an automatic recount, even though it is a very close race. It sounds like it is one quarter of 1%, right? That triggers a recount. That's correct. With 1,277 votes, you're looking for a really small number, basically, um, that it would have to be a threshold within to trigger a recount, right? In this case. Right. And, and, you know, there was a lot of thought put into that margin because, um, you know, even in races. And, and so as we talked about at the beginning, you know, I've been either overseeing or running elections for almost 16 years now in New Mexico, and we've gone through a ton of recounts, um, you know, back in the old days, the, the recount margin used to be a lot wider. Um, so you could have, you know, in a state house race, even, a, you know, a hundred plus, you know, vote difference. We've never seen a recount change the outcome of a race. And so, you know, in my experience, even in races where um, there was eight votes difference, right? We have never seen the outcome change. What we typically see in any given recount is you do tend to see, you know, a vote added or a vote subtracted. Um, really, it can be that small of a difference. But again, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you have to have, uh, even in a very narrow victory, you have to have so many ballots. Uh, that you either have to take out or add to uh, an outcome. And so, you know, in this case, a 1200 vote margin, you can't overcome that. Uh, you know, in the in the course of a recount, it, you know, unless there was some major systemic failure or some major systemic fraud, which we do not have a shred of evidence that either of those things happened. Now, of course, a candidate can request a recount, in which case they have to pay the full cost of that recount in advance. Um, they can do that. But again, I think folks have seen over the years, our system is so accurate that the likelihood is that that it's just not going to change at the end of the day. It's 480 votes. I just did the math. I had to find the total number of votes in that race because it's one quarter of 1% of the total votes in that race, right? With the total votes in that race were 192,232 people cast their ballots for that race. So one quarter of 1% would be 480 votes. Yeah. And I think along those lines, one thing I wanted to note you mentioned was the idea that there may be a one or two vote difference in cases where uh, races are being recounted. Some people may look at that and be like, aha, I've caught you. You know, it shows that your processes aren't accurate. But I, I guess what do you say to those folks who say, you know, just the slightest shred of, of maybe that shift in a recount shows that the whole process is just, you know, flawed, flawed. Well, I mean, that's that's the equivalent of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? 
What I think is important to understand is that it is a fundamentally human process, right? At the end of the day, you have humans administering the process, humans voting, um, mistakes can be made. There's very little that's subjective in counting ballots, but there is some. So I'll give you an example. Um, a voter, you know, will sometimes make a mistake on their ballot. Uh, they'll start to vote for one person and they'll realize, oh no, that's not the person I meant to vote for. I meant to vote for this next person. So they might leave a little mark uh, in the oval that was the mistake and then go in and fill in the oval. And so when that happens, human beings have to look at that and say, okay, what was the voter's intent here? Um, we see this full oval filled out for this candidate. We see this little mark. Does that mean they meant to vote for two people and they can't? So, right. So the, those are the kind of things we're talking about um, when we say something might change because you have one set of people making a judgment initially, and then you have a second set of people going back for the review and trying to make that determination. With that being said, again, you know, when you consider the fact that we had well over seven 700,000 ballots passed in this election. And we're talking about a mistake that amounts to maybe one or two votes in one or two races. That is an error rate that banks would love to have, that data managers would love to have, right? Because we don't have any perfect systems in this country. The fact that we can have such an accurate system, given all the human factor, I think means we're doing some amazing work here in our state. When recounts do happen, um, is it the same folks, like the same canvassing boards who do those recounts or is it a different set of people? It depends on the county. All the folks that conduct the canvas are usually staff of the county clerk's office. And so the folks who come in to conduct recounts tend to be people who were poll workers during the election process. So, you know, we do have, you know, that difference in groups, but, you know, uh, let's say in a lot of counties, it's whoever worked on the absentee board, right? Because they're the folks who are willing to come in, sit at a desk all day, every day doing that procedural work. They'll come in and work the recount. And in some cases, they are the same people, right, who made an initial determination on an absentee ballot, but who are looking at it again for the second time. We know you mentioned sometimes there are candidates that pop in and say, I want to recount, even though it doesn't fall within the threshold of the state's automatic recount process. That is seemingly an expensive process. Can you give us an idea of how expensive that process is and who pays for it? It sounds like it is the candidate. Yes. Yeah, so when you want to re just request a recount, um, you know, it is a, it is a high cost. It's it's around twelve hundred dollars a precinct. That's predetermined well in advance of the election by the state canvas board. And it's public on our website so that anybody who wants to even contemplate that can go uh, and, and factor that in. So if you're running, you know, for state representative, you can have, you know, 30, 40 precincts uh, in your, uh, you know, your district. So you're talking about, you know, fifty thousand ish dollars at least that you're going have to front. Now, if that paid for recount changed the outcome of the election, you would get your money back. 
Um, it's a deposit. But again, since we've never seen an outcome change, the likelihood of getting that money back is extremely low. So now if you're running statewide or you're running in a congressional race, you're talking about literally in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars that you're going to have to advance. So it is very expensive. Yeah, I just calculated, I think with 650 precincts in say CD2 at about $1,200 per precinct, I think that's uh, about $780,000 if I did the, the math right there. Yeah, so that's a, a big, big chunk of change. Yeah. <laughs> All the elections that you have under your belt at this point, have you ever dealt with an election where there was fraud taking place? And how is that dealt with potentially? Yeah, I think it's important to mention that while it's not widespread uh, and systematic, it, and very rare, it, it can happen. I mean, you know, folks probably remember from my time as county clerk, you know, we had an individual who registered his dog to vote just to try to test the system, right? Uh, and of course, you know, that's illegal. <laughs> so we had to, you know, send the county sheriff out and, and there were legal consequences for that individual. We, uh, in my time as secretary of state, have seen individuals trying to forge absentee ballots uh, in local races and we've had to get the attorney general's office, I think, um, and, and have had successful prosecutions of those individuals. So what folks need to know is it's not zero, but it's extremely rare. And the system uh, is so good at this point that we are able to catch it. And when we are, we refer it to law enforcement and we prosecute it. And I personally have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to election fraud because even when you have one case, right, it, it tends to sow those seeds of doubt for people. So my point of view is, you know, prosecute them fully and make sure that folks know there are severe consequences. It's a fourth degree felony to commit voter fraud or any kind of election fraud. And then you lose your right to vote as a result. And that's a permanent thing, right? Uh, not permanent. Uh, you know, in New Mexico, when you have completed the terms of your felony conviction, you do have your voting rights restored, but you also can't run for office. Yes. <laughs> so there, you know, there, there are long-term consequences. Yes. I know you appeared alongside uh, Attorney General Hector Balderas ahead of this election, sort of putting out this voting advisory, warning people of the idea of uh, possible voter intimidation. Did you hear any reports of voter intimidation this election? I have to say I was extremely pleased um, with how our elections functioned in New Mexico. And, and one of the main aspects of that was that voters seem to have really good experiences at the polls. Um, you know, we had a couple of one off weird issues that occurred, um, you know, a, a, a poll challenger, you know, kind of throwing a fit in a polling place, tearing up a, a document. Um, but, you know, again, it was it was so rare as to be almost zero. And and I, you know, I don't know if it's because, uh, you know, um, the election officials and, and law enforcement officials, you know, we came out with such a strong message that we were not going to tolerate voter intimidation or if it's because people I think are are kind of waking up and seeing that that is the wrong path or a combination of both. But I was really really pleased that we saw hardly any of that this cycle. Have you heard of any reports of fraud this November election? We have had zero reports of fraud so far this election. And have you heard any reports of problems with how the clerks ran their individual sort of counties this election? 
No, actually, it, it, you know, sometimes we do get those kind of complaints, but um, this cycle, right, long lines and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, it, it went smoothly. Thank goodness. Knock on wood. Well, you've shared a lot, and certainly this has been an, an insightful conversation for us. Um, is there anything we didn't ask that you want people to know or have a better understanding of? how this all works in New Mexico. Just two quick things. The last um, you know, piece of the process that I, I touched on earlier, and I'll be super brief, but you know, we also, after every general election, conduct a post-election audit. So once we've done all those other levels uh, and certified, we, what we're going to do this election, and you'll be able to, to sort of track this on our, our website, is our uh, independent CPA will come in and pick precincts at random throughout the state. So we never know which counties or which precincts are going to get picked. Um, we will reconvene those, those boards once again, and this will be in early December. Um, that's the timeline. And we'll open up those ballot boxes, hand tally those ballots for those precincts, compare them to the certified results and make sure they match up. Uh, if they don't, there is a process to continue counting more precincts and more ballots. Um, we've never had to go to that next step here in New Mexico, again, because we have highly accurate uh, tabulators and processes. But that's another sort of layer that I just want to let folks know. We have those paper ballots for a reason and we use them uh, to verify accuracy. And so when those precincts are picked, that'll be publicly made available on our website. That post-election process is a publicly observable uh, process. And then we will have the full report from the independent CPA posted on our website uh, once that's completed. So I just want to let folks know we have a lot of information available publicly, either to watch yourself or to go get from our website to just, you know, sort of add to that level of, of confidence. You know, it may not be the most exciting reading, um, but it's, uh, you know, intentional and meaningful. And, and I think that's basically it. And thank you for having me on today. Thanks again to our Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, for taking the time to shed a little bit more light about the process behind the scenes and all of the people who work to make sure that our elections run smoothly and are safe and accurate. We wanted to run through again some of the results of the major races here in New Mexico. Again, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is re-elected for another four-year term here in New Mexico. You have my commitment and promise that I am back to work only on governing. <laughs> Congressional districts, CD1, Melanie Stansberry, a Democrat, beat her opponent, Michelle Garcia Holmes, by 12 points. This is a win, not only for New Mexico, but for the entire country. In CD2, we discussed that one. Yvette Harrell was unseated by her Democratic opponent, Gabe Vasquez. And in CD3, Teresa Ledger Fernandez beat out her Republican challenger, Alexis Martinez Johnson. That race was won by 18 points. So all three of New Mexico's congressional districts are Democrats. That's right. So that means the uh, entire congressional delegation, if you include New Mexico's two U.S. senators as well, it is an entirely Democratic delegation 
that last happened in 2018, the midterm there when Xochitl Torres Small uh, took Steve Pierce's seat. Pierce had run for governor at that point. We mentioned a few other statewide races. Uh, it was pretty much a landslide for Democrats in the other state offices. I plan to focus on making the office of the state auditor more nimble to respond to complaints of fraud, waste, and abuse. State auditor went to Joseph Maestas, a PRC commissioner who defeated his libertarian challenger, Travis Sanchez. Uh, Republicans didn't run a candidate in the state auditor's race. Maestas will replace Democrat Brian Colon, who served just one term. You may remember he was running the Democratic primary for New Mexico's attorney general's office. So for me, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to protect victims and our families in New Mexico didn't win that primary against Raul Torres. The state land commissioner as well, that went to Stephanie Garcia Richard. She'll be serving a second term in that office. She defeated PRC commissioner Jefferson Byrd. There's also the secretary of state's race. Democrat Maggie Toulouse Oliver defeated Republican challenger Audrey Trujillo. In the final statewide race for treasurer, that went to Democrat Laura Montoya over Republican Harry Montoya. We also know New Mexico's entire House of Representatives were up for grabs. Chris, was there any shift for the balance of power there? Pretty much no. We'll see. A couple of these seats have to go to recounts. So that is District 32 down in southwest New Mexico. Candy Sweetser, Democrat, against Jennifer Jones. Uh, There is such a slim vote difference between there. It was around 43 votes between Jennifer Jones, who had the lead on Candy Sweetser. So that may be a seat that Republicans flip. There's also one in the Albuquerque area, District 68, where Charlotte Little had a lead over Robert Moss. That was a 30 vote difference as of Thursday. It's a Democratic seat that Democrats could hold on to if Charlotte Little retains that about 30 vote lead. So those are the two races that'll have to go to recounts. There were a couple flips for the Republicans. They won seats they didn't have, but then Democrats also won two seats they didn't have. So if all sort of holds on this, Republicans are essentially looking at a net gain of one seat. It was an independent seat that they basically won back for the party. Notably, That seat became independent because the Republican who was sitting in it, a guy named Phelps Anderson, he voted for the state's abortion ban repeal in one of the most recent legislative sessions. I believe it was the 2021 session. So Phelps Anderson, a Republican, votes for this repeal. He's the only person in his party to do it. And when that happens, tons of backlash. He changes his party affiliation to decline to state effectively independent, right? And he decided he was not going to run again. So he leaves that seat and Republicans have a candidate now that has won that seat. So that is going to be the net one gain, it seems, if the votes hold after these mandatory recounts take place. Yeah. And I know we're in Albuquerque. So I do want to also mention the Bernalillo County Sheriff's race. Sheriff Manny Gonzalez was term limited, so he is no longer the sheriff in Bernalillo County. John Allen, a Democrat, beat out his Republican challenger, Paul Pacheco, for that. So new sheriff for Bernalillo County. (laughs) 
even though there were other races we didn't talk about here, we do have more coverage online at krqe.com, a lot of good summary posts of all the outcomes of the election. So we'll link to a few of those here in the uh, show notes for this episode and in the episode on krqe.com slash podcasts. You know, it was quite a blue wave that came through New Mexico in the middle of Joe Biden's term, which we know nationally his approval ratings are fairly low, but they're higher here in New Mexico and a lot of Democratic stronghold here in our state, much different from our neighbors in Texas. Another question people have is, you know, what will Mark Ronchetti do next? I think there's not only him, but, you know, there's also just to think about some of the other political candidates that are sort of seeing the exit door from elected office here at this point. Sheriff Manny Gonzalez is one of those. We did an exit interview with him recently. Uh, Brian Colon is another person I mentioned. He is losing his position as the state auditor. Hector Balderas. mm -hmm, Hector Balderas is term limited. So he, we know, has applied to uh, be the president of Northern New Mexico College. As of right now, I don't think they've made the decision on who's going to get that job. But, uh, you know, yeah, there's futures out there for a lot of these bigger name politicians or sort of more um, recognizable names. And you just kind of wonder what will happen. And we'll certainly have to follow that. We appreciate you joining us here this week. If you want to reach out, chris.mckee at krqe.com. You can also reach me on social media at chrismckeetv. You can also reach me at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening.